0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number one hundred and thirty three recorded on September third, twenty nineteen. If you are listening on iTunes, please take a minute right now to leave us a review. This will help others find the show and stay up to date with the European tech news. Today, we will talk about the French digital tax and the response to it by the US, about ACAST borrowing money from the European Investment Bank, about future Europe and much more. In the interview department, we have got a conversation with Daniel Korsky, uh, the co-founder and CEO of the GovTech startup acceleration platform (laughs) Public.io. I am your host Andre Degler, joined today by our research lead Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's life?
1: Hi, Andre. It's going well. And first, before we get started with the podcast, I just want to say a big thank you to all the podcast listeners who came up to me last week at Turing Fest in Edinburgh. It was such a delight to hear from you, and thank you so much for introducing yourselves. It means so much, and I was so sincerely touched by meeting you all. And I really appreciated hearing from you. So thank you so much for listening.
0: Uh, this is great. This is always great when you get feedback to what you're doing. And podcasts uh, have don't have exactly the fastest feedback loop. So that, that that's great that uh, you were able to uh, meet people who are actually listening to us.
1: <laughs> Definitely, and really like to reiterate that point about making leaving us a review on iTunes. That really helps us out and also lets us know what you like about the show and what we can do better.
0: Also, if you see us on any conference at all, if you have anything to say about this podcast, please do. We are very happy to talk. Now, before we dive into topics of today, uh, another short uh, shout out. Uh, Today's episode is sponsored by the O'Reilly Velocity Conference, and this one is coming to Berlin on November 4th to 7th. The conference will focus on teaching new skills, approaches, and technologies for building and managing large-scale cloud-native systems. It will cover everything from Kubernetes and site reliability engineering to observability and performance to give you a comprehensive understanding of applications and services. So get your tickets today on velocityconf.com tech and stay on top of the rapidly changing cloud landscape. And of course, listeners of the TechEU podcast can get something special. That is 20% off most passes to Velocity use the code TECHEU20 during registration. So it is velocityconf.com slash tech and the code is TECHEU20. Now, stories of last week. What I wanted to talk about today is actually two stories, two in one, or rather Maybe two developments of one story that both happened last week. And it's all about the French digital tax, uh, which the country introduced recently. Uh, Just to remind you, France is going to start taking 3% of the revenues that major tech companies generate from their digital businesses. The tax only applies to companies that earn more than €25 million per year in France and at the same time at least €750 million worldwide. So the U.S. predictably was not very happy about uh, this tax and uh, threatened to retaliate. And The United States Trade Representative even launched a so-called Section 301 investigation, which means that he's looking at whether the tax discriminates against and, uh, I quote, unfairly targets American companies, the quote ends, because obviously a lot of the victims of the new tax would be uh, the major American corporations like Facebook and Amazon and so on. So Donald Trump Himself went even further and suggested placing additional taxes on French on French products, particularly French wines, in the U.S. in retaliation for the digital tax. And speaking about uh, the tax itself, he said that, I quote, they should not have done this. They are used to taking advantage of the United States, but not with me as president, the quote ends. Now, let's get to what happened uh, last week. So on Monday, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, said that uh, France and the U.S. had reached a deal on this uh, standoff, and uh, Reuters reported the following. The quote begins, Macron told reporters that companies that pay the tax would be able to deduct the amount once a new international deal on how to tax Internet companies is found next year. The quote ends. That sounded great, but unfortunately, the deal appears to be far from closed. Uh, CNN reported later last week that the Trump administration allegedly has told the tech industry that it is simply holding off on any retaliatory tariffs on France for up to 90 days. So there is a three-month sort of a pause. CNN did not disclose its sources but mentioned that the information comes from several people familiar with the matter. And if these people are to be trusted, uh, there is no real deal at the moment between France and the US. But this uh, 3 months uh, pause that gives the sides a chance to take a deep breath and uh, in the meantime... France and the U.S. are also expected to take the leading roles in working on the large-scale tax overhaul within the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD. And the main idea here is to bring the global taxation system up to date with how businesses work these days. And, of course, that includes the multinational digital behemoths that often pay little to no tax at all. I'm looking at you, Facebook, and at you, Amazon, and uh, at many other uh, American companies. We will follow further developments of this story, but it's likely that we will see the first meaningful updates somewhere next year, because uh, the people quoted by CNN also are saying that even after the 90 days No measures are likely to be taken by the U.S. because uh, the country will most probably wait for the investigation uh, to be over. And that most probably will not happen within this uh, time frame. Natalie, do you have a particular take on this? What do you think it's going to end with?
1: Well, I don't think either side is going to back down easily. And I think France more than likely is it's very valid for them to be imposing this new digital tax uh, but i don't think the american side will back down very easily without a fight so not sure what's going to happen but maybe it's something that the multinational organization the oecd will have to hash out
0: no yeah it's an it's an interesting situation because like if you think about it if the us introduces like the same mirror tax it's not going to work nothing's going to happen
1: <laughs> no no and i think The American president is very comfortable getting in uh, tax wars right now. So maybe it's not the um, last one we're going to see happen that European tech will have to contend with. But it's really hard to say. It's quite an unpredictable situation.
0: Yeah, for sure. So we'll keep our eyes open. Now, Natalie, what did you want to talk about today?
1: Yeah, so this week I wanted to talk about a new 25 million euro loan by the European Investment Bank, into ACAST, the Swedish podcasting company. And we've talked about ACAST on the podcast before, in episode 123 in July, when, Andre, you shared about the huge amounts that are being invested into the podcasting market in Europe and abroad. ACAST produces both independent podcasts and hosts the audio content of other publishers, including this podcast you're listening to right now. And why this loan is significant is that it's a direct loan by the EIB into a European technology company. Most of the time, we know the EIB for investing heavily into private equity or VC funds, which is then later invested into startups. But the EIB is taking an increasingly larger role by investing loans directly into small and medium companies under the investment plan for Europe. This plan, which is alternatively known as the Junker Plan after the European Commission president, was designed to mobilize private investment and help European companies compete on a global scale. While much of the EIB's investment money is earmarked for infrastructure and climate projects, an increasingly larger share, today about 40%, is specifically outlined for small and medium enterprises. There are different schemes available, but if you're a company of less than 250 employees, you too can apply for the type of financing that was just announced by ACAS. In this example, what the EIB is offering is called quasi-equity, and this might sound counterintuitive, but stay with me for a moment. Quasi-equity was designed specifically for the needs of innovative high-risk companies and is unique to the EIB. This type of financing was aimed at eliminating some of the unattractive elements of other types of investments. For example, traditional loans might be unattractive to high-risk and high-growth companies when it might be difficult for them to commit to regular repayments when all resources are currently being put into growth and R&D. Similarly, equity investments at a later stage dilute the shares of early shareholders who took on financing at the high-risk stage. So quasi-equity aims to mitigate the negative aspects of both of these sorts of financing. This type of EIB loan does not require regular repayment, nor does it require giving up equity in the company. So it seems like a pretty great offering for European companies at the growth stage. The EIB has been offering quasi-equity loans since around 2016, and the demand for these types of investment continues to grow. Their investment in Acas is probably one of their most notable loans recently for watchers of European tech. Because when you look at some of their latest European investments, more commonly, you're seeing things like 26 million euros into Dublin Airport's operational resilience and 140 million towards Hungary's structural funding. But things like this are becoming a lot more common. But if you look closer, you're also seeing some strategic investments into technology companies. For example, earlier this summer, $11 million into Intrinsic ID, which is an IoT security company from the Netherlands, and last year, $20 million towards AI Motive, a Hungarian company working on self-driving car technologies. So given the pretty attractive offering by the EIB here, and the EIB's commitment to continue doing more quasi-equity investments, if this is an option that you haven't considered for funding your company, it's one that you might want to have a look at. However, do be aware that EIB has a pretty comprehensive due diligence process. And here again is where the deal with ACAST really stands out. For investors, when you're considering an investment, you should know the product and the team pretty well inside and out. But here, it looks like the EIB and ACAST are a great fit. The EIB, quote, loves podcasts, according to the YouTube video they produced announcing this latest investment. They also have hosted several podcasts on ACAST for some years now, a Dictionary of Finance and Future Europe, and we'll link to them in our recommendation section. So they've had a while to get acquainted with one another. All in all, it's a pretty interesting deal and a pretty great alternative for European companies looking to compete. So have a look at the EIB's offerings. There might be something that's the right fit for your company. So check that out.
0: Okay, so I totally failed my homework. I didn't really dig too deep into it, but uh, but I still don't really get how this uh, uh, quasi-equity thing works. Do you actually have to repay it at all?
1: Well, this is very interesting because I did quite a bit of digging into this. And in terms of repaying it, they are actually very kind of wishy-washy in some ways about how much they expect to be getting repaid. And they've also been very public about saying, we don't expect that all of these investments will be repaid. Um, but then I tried to find more information about the terms, and these are kept private. So I we really don't know what the terms of this loan look like. So it does seem that it is pretty generous and will be flexible, considering they're not giving up any equity in the company.
0: Yeah, exactly. You don't give up any equity and it doesn't seem like a convertible, because any convertible at this stage would not make a lot of sense, I suppose.
1: So we'll link in in the show notes to um the EIB where there's an article that they put out about what is quasi equity. Uh this is really kind of the most comprehensive document that I've seen on it. Um, but even that doesn't give too much information about what quasi equity really entails the real nuts and bolts of it
0: right so if you listen into this and uh, you know more than us about it or you understand the story that we're linking to better than us do let us know we would love to give an update on this in one of the future episodes for now though uh, we can uh, Move on towards the interview section. And uh, uh, this time it's going to be a conversation with Daniel Korski, which I recorded last week in Copenhagen at the Digital Front Runners Conference. So, Daniel is uh, the co founder and CEO of the golf tech startup acceleration platform public.io. And we discussed a bunch of questions regarding the governmental tech landscape across Europe and uh, its uh, prospects. Let's listen to this one together, and uh, we will be back in a few minutes. Hello, uh, this is Andrew Degler reported today uh, from the Digital Frontrunners Conference for tech.eu. And I have a chance to catch up with Daniel Korsky, the CEO and co-founder of Public. Hey, Daniel, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk today. It's a pleasure to join you. So uh, let's start from the beginning. Who are you?
2: What have you been doing over the past years? And what are you doing now? So, uh, as you said, I'm the CEO of a, of a new kind of venture firm public, which, uh, uh my co-founder, Alex de Caviar and I founded three years ago with an idea of, of basically creating, um, a GovTech ecosystem in Europe, uh, backing great startups that want to transform public services, accelerating them, building new companies from scratch and effectively trying to create um, all the other accoutrement of an ecosystem, conferences, uh, research and so forth in an effort at, at trying to make Europe the sort of place where the welfare state is rethought anew with new technology. And I came to, th- and I came to that job after, uh, about 20 years. In and out of government, most recently as the deputy head of policy for the British Prime Minister. So, and
0: what do you think, uh, what's your take on the current state of the GovTech ecosystem in
2: Europe? Does it actually exist and what is it like? Oh, it definitely exists and it's incredibly vibrant. Every year we gather uh, three, 4,000 people, startups, civil servants, politicians at our GovTech summit in Paris in November. Uh, And if you were to go there, you would see there's a real passion, a real excitement. Now, of course, we have to be honest. You know, this isn't like fintech. It's certainly not like ad tech or retail tech. We're at an early stage, but, uh, but I remember the beginnings of the fintech. You know, movement. People were sitting around going, are you really serious? You think these long haired guys are gonna, gonna take on the banks? And you know, there's something about that here too, you know. And and the interesting thing is the public sector IT has many of the hallmarks that other well entrenched uh sectors had you know large incumbents that haven't been incentivized to innovate that don't have a culture of disruption that allow them to eat you know what may be their short term gain for longer term value um so so I see a lot of the same hallmarks and at the same time, I think there's something happening in our in the technology ecosystem as a whole and and what I mean is I think you know 20 years into the latest sort of wave, there there is now a, a sense from founders and engineers and product managers that maybe, you know, technology needs to focus on doing something good as well as doing something fun or doing something valuable and impactful as well as doing something financial rewarding. And GovTech is one of those beneficiary sectors from that sense. Okay. So, so you mentioned that uh,
0: uh, fintech uh, companies uh, kind of went uh, after these uh, bigger banks uh, rather successfully. I would say. So, whom are the Gulf tech uh, startups are after then?
2: There are a number of uh, incumbent providers that have been providing you know public sector IT solutions over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Most countries in Europe will have uh, will see the vast majority of. Uh, public sector ICT tenders going to five, six large companies, large, uh, consultancies, uh, large IT providers. And, and these companies are, are very good at what they have, they have learned to do, which is to bid for work and then to deliver contracts that are not particularly innovative, but sufficiently you know, innovative so people can stand back and say, at least we did something that was different than yesterday. And then guess what? Towards the end of the life of a contract, everybody sort of starts working more slowly. And then when the contracts of renewal, they get to win it again, or they sort of pass around each other. And so I think there are, like in the banking sector, there are a number of these incumbents that, that are now going to get disrupted by new players. But similarly, to just to take the analogy even further, not every fintech company is trying to disrupt every bank. Some fintech companies are trying to support and sell to the banks. And that's also, yeah, that's also the case in GovTech, right? There are players who think, you know, we are a point solution. We are the best, uh, you know, diagnostic support tool that a doctor can get. But we know that doctors need a whole lot of other things. And so we just want to plug into, you know, a patient record management system or, uh, you know, there are startups that think we are the best. You know, product to help, you know, an example, I'm thinking of one company called Sign Forensics. They're the best company to help a police officer looking for terrorist or, uh, pedophile material on people's computers. But a police officer will do a lot more than just that. And these guys, you know, just want to plug into a much bigger system, having developed that point solution better than anybody else has. Right. And before we go anywhere else, how do you define golf tech in general? Well, I mean, in a way, you can define it as, you know, technology that wants to transform public services. You know, I think it's advantageous to adopt an even broader definition, which is to say technology that is trying to transform public services or trying to deliver the public good that public services would have delivered. Because there are ways in which technology is now allowing new services to emerge, which have a public utility. But the government may not want to pay for it or may not have any money to pay for it any longer uh and 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 there may be different sources of revenue besides a government contract in order to deliver that service what would be the what would be the examples here so I was just thinking uh you know sensors and roads are developing a whole series of different opportunities to get something out of a road that you wouldn't normally get expect to get out of your relationship with a highways agency. Normally what you get out of the highways is they maintain the road so you can drive your car on it. You know, suddenly the road can say to you, by the way, you know, uh, not just that you're driving too fast, but there's a, a queue ahead, uh, you know, where you were planning to go or might say, do you realize that your tires are, uh, <laughs> uh you know, worn out or, or there are a whole series of things. There are a whole series of things that a, a sensor in a road can tell you that would be very valuable for road safety that the highways agency has never had to think about delivering. Does it mean it's not a public good? No, it's a very good public. It is a very public good if we can reduce traffic accidents, right? right. So, it's just an interesting example. Right, but also this definition kind
0: of includes a lot of uh, things like healthcare for example at some point, right? But so does I'm, it also part of a uh, golf
2: tech for you? Well, to me, I mean, look, healthcare systems are different across the world. Um, you know, in Europe, most of our healthcare systems are either wholly or partly state operated. Uh and so I think it is entirely natural to include it, but I also think there are many parts to the, to health tech, right? There's a clinical part, you right. know, when the needle enters your vein, when the knife gets into or cuts through your skin, um, when the pill is, is, is ingested. But to run a healthcare system, you need a hell of a lot of other things. You know, we get the, need the you know, we need the patient, uh, in, in the right place, uh, ideally, you know managing their health so that they don't have to end up in a hospital uh, but if they do we need the doctor to arrive at the same time as the nurse we need everybody to support you through a hospital process and hopefully into some recovery outside of a hospital if you're you know getting older into social care all these things are large government systems that technology can help deliver much you know, greater efficiencies than than anything else. Okay. So three years
0: into the life of uh public, uh, what, uh, what are the results? What are you proud of? Uh, what What is there else uh, still left to do for you?
2: Well, you know, look, I'm hugely proud that GovTech has become um, something on people's lips. We didn't invent the term GovTech. We picked it out of a World Bank report in the 1980s, but we definitely popularized it. We definitely made it sexy. We definitely talked it up. And so, and, and insofar as talking about, Public sector ICT as GovTech is allowing new players into the market, new ways of thinking about public services. Then I think that's something we can be incredibly proud of. Um, on a more kind of tactical level, we now have you know equity in about forty-five companies. We think that they're the premier you know GovTech companies you know in Europe probably globally, and we're incredibly proud of the sort of things that these guys are delivering, whether it is better health care for older people or safer roads or greater protection against cyber attacks. And uh, what is this uh, program that you're doing called GovStart? What is it? So we run a series of programs. GovStart is our own accelerator program. We take, uh, in France, Germany, and the UK, we take uh, 10 to 12 companies in, in the UK and about five or six in Germany and France over a six-month period. And like the Y Combinator, we try to help them in, in every way we can. The difference is we do all the things that a normal accelerator does, but we focus on you know public sector applications. In Denmark, we, on the back of that success, were invited to tender to run the official government's GovTech program. It's slightly different. We don't take equity, uh, but we support the government in trying to articulate challenges so that technology companies can solve them in a new and different way. Right. I've been thinking about GovTech the other day. And
0: one of the things is, I suppose there are quite a bunch of startups that are doing something that could be used for GovTech, but is not being used for that particular purpose. Do you work in any way to find these uh, startups and uh, at
2: least suggest them to apply their solutions to this uh, industry? You're spot on. Um, First of all, any company would be wise to think about many different outlets for their product and service, A- and the same goes for the conversation that we're having. And we definitely, when we see those opportunities, go to those companies and say, "By the way, do you realize that this product could be really helpful uh, here?" You know, uh, and 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 there's nothing new here. You know, SAP has uh, and Oracle have grown incredibly rich on selling you know CRM solutions both to the private and the public sector. Now, there are. Some interesting obstacles. Some public sector bodies are so convinced that they're so unique that only things built for them can work. And a lot of consultancies have become very wealthy building the same thing over and over and over again. Because guess what? Then things are not always so unique. And I think there's a little bit of an, you know, a journey to go on so that public sector buyers realize what is commoditized and definitely just needs to be bought off the shelf, right. and what is genuinely unique to the circumstances they face because of demographic differences, because of policy preferences, because of financial you know, constraints. On the other hand, what I can imagine as well happening, that
0: some startups... Some founders, the moment they hear about selling something to the government, they would just leave the table and run as fast as they can because it's, it's like a proverbial pain in the ass, I suppose.
2: Yeah. And, and I guess I would say to you, um, try selling to General Motors or, you know, Ford or Maersk, you know, I mean, it's hard. Enterprise sales are hard and government sales are a kind of enterprise sale. Um, at the same time, contracts are very sticky. So if you get in, you end up staying in. Uh and, and 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 government is an incredibly uh powerful anchor customer. If you can say, you know what, I'm selling this to, you know, the, the German welfare ministry or the British Army, you know, that's an incredibly powerful uh recommendation. Uh so that's an advantage. And I think we just have to be careful not to compare everything to B2C sales. You know, it's not like putting a great t-shirt on Instagram and then seeing them fly off the handle, but I, I also fly off the shelf. But I also think that there is potential more longevity in some of those other contracts because, you know, your t-shirt, which garnered you lots of sales on Instagram, you know, may not be as, uh, as, uh, a la mode, you know, a week or a month later. Is this something you're uh, coaching your uh, startups about as well during the programs? How to, how to sell? How to, uh, how to approach the governments? Exactly. I mean, we try to kind of talk to them about some of the softer sides, some and some of the more, you know, uh, if you will, administrative sides. You know, how do you kind of deal with the tender process? But, but at the same time, you know, selling the government is kind of like selling everywhere else, in the sense that people buy what they have confidence in, and you can give confidence in a number of different ways. You can give it in a in a sort of very hard nosed financial way. Or, you know, by building a story around your company and a brand and associating with people who are trusted and so on and so forth. So that also works for the governments. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, humans are humans, right? Uh, Sure, government works in a slightly different way, has to take care of 100% of the population, not just sell to 60% of the population. And that's the huge difference in a sort of B2C Comparison, but buyers are humans too. you know they also go home and put their kids to sleep at night and and they also worry about you know their colleagues' uh, success or failure or who will get the next job and so on and you kind of have to tell a convincing enough story that they're interested in what you 've got to sell. Then comes the formal procurement process and to finish uh, things off, what do you see being done
0: wrong by the startups most often when uh, uh, selling to the governments it's a great question I think
2: you know, to the point that you made, maybe sometimes an underestimation of what's required, maybe a, an, under, an underestimation of the fact that they need to take the customer on a journey. I say that to people starting out in the public sector, you know, find a customer that has a need, knows that she has a need and has the money and power to act on that need. That may not mean your ideal customer it may mean that you will be starting out in a small municipality you know north of warsaw as opposed to in the polish finance ministry but that's okay you know start there and build from there and i think there's a sort of tendency to say well who is my natural customer and let me go to that customer but that customer may not have a need realize they have a need or if they have a need and realize it have the power and the money to do something about it
0: Okay, Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for the interview and uh, uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Hello again. Welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. Thanks uh, uh, to Daniel uh, once again for uh, this uh, conversation. It was really interesting to talk. And now it is uh, time for the recommendation part. So what I wanted to recommend today is... A quick story. Well, I mean, it's a long story, actually, uh, but a quick, uh. Recommendation from me. Uh, The piece is called uh, How VCs Cover Europe. It was written by Vincent Jacobs on Medium. And it's a quite detailed overview of how VC funds can reach companies and founders in different parts of Europe. And that uh, ranges from opening actual physical local offices uh, all the way to crunching a lot of data and uncovering the hidden champions, if you will, in each uh, geography. So it's very obvious, as the author mentions, that uh, European VC funds need to find a way to be present in the local ecosystems. Because right now, just sitting in a London office and waiting for the best startups to come knocking doesn't uh, cut it anymore at all. So check out the piece and let us uh, and the author know what you think on Twitter or in any other way known to you. We would love to hear your thoughts. Natalie, did you read about this one?
1: I did, and I thought it was very comprehensive and covers a lot of the same things that I'm also noticing in the ecosystem so that's why I wanted to slightly piggyback off of your recommendation, Andre, with a somewhat similar recommendation of my own from Jean, the managing partner of Kima Ventures. And Kima Ventures is headquartered in Paris, and they're a venture capital arm of Xavier Neal, who is the French billionaire and mine behind 42, which is the free tech school and one of the most active angel investors in the world. So Kima Ventures invests in a company about every three days. So they've really seen a lot of the ecosystem, and I think their observations are very keen. So the post I'm recommending this week is titled, For Foreign Investors Willing to Back Startups in France. But I think the takeaways are applicable for those investing across Europe. So it's a nice compliment to your piece that you recommended earlier. So in the post, he encourages those that are looking to invest in France and I'll say Europe um, to spend time to get to know the ecosystems and the teams that are coming from these ecosystems. Get to know the unique differences and also to take these teams seriously. Don't waste founders time and realize that you need to put in the work as an investor to get on the ground in these places to gain trust, to listen and to understand. And a lot of what he says in the piece reminds me of my experience that you need to approach everything in these new places with a learner's or beginner's mindset and not to take what you know for granted. And I've really appreciated that he wrote it. And I think there's a lot of valuable advice in there for investors of all types or anyone that is coming into the tech ecosystem, no matter your background. But for a bonus this week, I want to do another recommendation for the Future Europe podcast by the European Investment Bank. And this is a really kind of fun podcast where they highlight short segments of what they think are some of the most topical themes for the future of Europe. It's really enjoyable. The segments are short and sweet, and I really appreciate the EIB working to engage with their audience here. So especially if you think maybe you want to raise some funding or investment from the EIB, um, have a look at that podcast.
0: It sounds great. I actually checked this one out before we started recording today. It's uh, it's an interesting show, but I, I don't think they're doing it. Uh, they're doing it right now because I think the last episode is uh, dated like a couple of months ago or something. So I can only hope that uh, they will start again. Yeah, um,
1: maybe they're on a break. This summer, maybe they took summer off.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a governmental organization in Europe, so they, they they might as well have done just that. Now, uh, it is also time for us to take some time off at least tonight, and uh, that's it for today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. And if you did, please tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore you. If you're not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. We are present on all the platforms on Spotify, on SoundCloud, on Acast, you name it. Uh, uh, audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound pulse.com. And please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at tech.eu and Natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in, what, two weeks in person when we will be able to uh, record a uh, show uh, together in Copenhagen.
1: I'm looking forward to that too. It's been way too long. Indeed. So thanks for having me today.
0: Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.